From the mid-70s onwards, Talking Head songs such as Psycho Killer, Burning Down the House, Once in a Lifetime and Life During Wartime combined David Byrne's nervy vocals with a, a quirky lyrical sensibility and rhythmic sophistication. But uh, he's moved on a long way, come a long way since uh, Talking Heads broke up in the early 90s. And uh, he has embarked on a successful solo career, releasing a series of albums, sealed a reputation as one of the most highly regarded songwriters of his generation. David Byrne, you're very welcome to Rattleback. Hello, hello. Um, I'm going to, before talking to you, uh, straight away play uh, something, one of the tracks from your new album, Grown Backwards. This one is called Glad. Do you want to just say anything about it beforehand? Anything about the track beforehand? Yes, not everything in the this, in this song is true, but some of it is. Uh, I think one of the things that's not true in the song is the fact that you are glad that you sometimes get your girlfriend's old girlfriend's names mixed up. Is that it? That's right. And that seems like seemed like I just had to put that in because it seems like the classic male fear. <laughs> and so I thought, OK, that's got to go in where, there with all the other ones, all the other kind of terrible aspects of, of life that I'm actually glad are there. Um, okay, well, this is glad. That's definitely not true, and you can make up your own minds what might or might not be true, what might be ironic. This is glad from Grown Backwards. I'm glad I've got skin, I'm glad I've got eyes, I'm glad I got hips, I'm glad I got thighs, I'm glad I'm allowed to say the things I feel. I'm glad I got hair, I'm glad I got ears, I'm glad I got lungs, I'm glad I got tears, glad that I never ever know what's real. I'm glad I got lost, I'm glad I'm confused, I'm glad I don't know what I like, I'm glad I got stoned. Sex is not so great I'm glad that I doubt I know what they say I'm glad when I get my girlfriend's names confused I'm glad I know how my life will end I'm glad I don't have no common sense Glad the things are wrong I thought I knew I'm glad I'm a mess I'm glad you don't mind It's good when it's bad, I'm glad it's not worrying me. And that is glad from grown backwards. Uh, David, there's a sense about this new album that uh, you're, you're, you're looking at some at least of the seven ages of man, the ones that you've experienced. There's an element of uh, the Bob Dylan quote, I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Is that, is that yeah, that's, true? Yeah, I think that's where the title comes from. Mm. And I mean, what, what exactly, what, are you, what part of your life or what, what are you looking at? Looking at uh, maybe a, a more emotional present and future 
or uh, able to express that a little bit better than I have in the past. As you said earlier, I'm kind of known for writing kind of maybe cold and somewhat clever songs. Cerebral, I think is yeah. the word a lot of people use. And they, do, they, although I didn't always feel that way the, about the things I wrote in the past, that was certainly, there's an element of truth to that, but I think a lot less so now. Yeah, the thing that surprises me is that when people talk to you about your songs, you think of them, you talk of them as pop songs. Yeah, well, they're about three, three and a half minutes, four minutes long, and they have all the elements of a regular pop song. But that uh, seems to be a bit of a... You seem to be putting yourself down, in a sense, by talking about them as pop songs, i.e. they are just pop songs. To, to, to a generation of people, they're a lot more than just pop songs. Well, I've chosen unusual subjects and unusual approaches, but I still think I work within that, that thing, the pop song, and I'm, hap- I'm happy about that. I don't always work within that, but I often do, and I, I think it's a great arena to work when it's and it's great to have those confines because you can kind of push against them and go quite far and yet still kind of be inside that uh, that arena that people are sort of familiar with how much of yourself do you put into albums have you put a lot of yourself for example into this one a lot of your experience i think i do put a lot of myself in but and but i'm often not aware of it um i'm sure there's a lot of myself in everything I've done and I'm just not I'm aware of it or at least I'm not aware of it until a year later or so when I look back and I go oh that song was sort of in a, in a way a prediction of what I was going to do because I think your record is saying that while most people seem to think that you are or that an artist uses his art as some sort of therapy that in fact in, in, in a sense it works the other way around yeah, I think the art sort of helps you out. It certainly did me. Um, I I was a painfully shy person to begin with when Talking Heads began, and still am a little bit, but not nowhere near as much. And so I think I used the performing mainly as a way of, well, meeting people and in a way of expressing myself and expressing things that I just couldn't say in normal conversation. Psycho killer. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of thing you would have a conversation with somebody yeah. about in a prison, perhaps. Um, you've you, you've moved away from percussion because obviously Talking Heads was uh, uh, it was cerebral, but it was also about uh, it was about beats, it was about percussive, it was uh, it was thinking person's music that you could also dance to, and uh, and in your earlier solo work, there's a, a, a huge percussive element, and in your kind of if I can call it extracurricular work with Latin music, a lot of it's very very rhythmic but this particular album you're working with the Tosca strings for example um, why that departure is it experimentation well uh, I'd begun working with them uh, on my last tour and I loved it and I thought that I could still mix in occasionally the percussive percussive stuff and the rhythms but add kind of balance that with this kind of a the kind of romantic emotional thing that's always um, signified by strings and the strings sort of breaking out in, in any song. And uh, so I did that. And, of course, that meant that some songs I could do without any percussion at all. Um, it's still there, but, yeah, it plays a, a less of a major role on, on this record. 
And I think there, there were other songs that were written at the same time that were more kind of um, driving beat beat driven mm. songs that just didn't seem like they fit with the rest of the songs on the record, so they got taken off. And you don't use the strings for atmosphere. You don't use them for syrupy effect either, do you? No, I think that's a trap that I've, I think I've managed to avoid, that uh, the arrangers I work with and the, the whole approach is to treat them as if they're part of the band and uh, give them all the melodic lines and the chords and the beats and all the, all the things that uh, the guitar players would normally have. In this case, it goes, it goes to them. Two things that, uh, two tracks that are particularly interesting are two operatic tracks. You've got uh, Au Fond du Temple Saint, which is uh, that wonderful duet from the Pearl Fishers that you do with Rufus Wainwright. And you have Un de Felice as well from, from, from Traviata. Are you particularly interested in opera or do you just like these two p- particular tracks? I'm not particularly a, a super opera fan or incredibly knowledgeable but I think I felt at one point that these connected uh, emotionally and that I just realized, oh, these are just great songs and that I, could, I can do them as songs and I can, they become a kind of key to, for me to kind of unlock things, say, emotionally that allows me to write the other stuff on the record. I think you said you reckon that opera, that they, they were the pop songs of their day, really. I believe so. I believe that they weren't confined to the opera house, that people sang them in bars and taverns and farmers sang them on the fields. Still do in Italy. Yeah. (laughs) And Rufus Wainwright, why is he somebody who's also particularly interested in in opera? He is much more of an opera fan than I am. And so it was a natural choice. The part of the duet, the other part, his part, is... I realized was in his range. I knew uh, from meeting him previously that he was this huge opera fan. Mm. And so I called him up and he immediately said, oh, yes, I'll do it. And this is the way we should do it. And I'll help you with your French pronunciation. (laughs) And pardon my ignorance, but I think that the duet is a a, a slightly older man and a younger man as well, isn't it? It might be, yeah, which is... Yeah. Perfect for this, except I think we might have reversed roles here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's hear it. Um, we're going to hear uh, the Au Fond du Temple Saint from Growing Backwards. We're talking to David Byrne, who's playing in the Radisson in Galway tonight. And uh, we'll have more from David Byrne after the break. Au Fond du Temple Saint
we're talking to David Byrne in uh, Galway. Hi. I got a tape I want to play. Psycho Killer from the Stop Making Sense album and the Stop Making Sense film, the wonderful concert version of that song from the Talking Heads 77 album. David, the the startup of Talking Heads, was it a kind of a, an, a, an art school project? Yeah, well, I mean, we were serious about it, but uh, we'd met in art school, Chris France and I, and then uh, he was with his girlfriend, his wife-to-be, Tina Weymouth, and I'd been writing some songs and we wrote some together and I think we thought, well, let's have a go at it and see if anyone's interested and if they're not, then we'll seek other employment. Tina went off, I think, and learned learned to play the bass guitar, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She did. She did really well, too. And you started gigging. I mean, CBGB's now is is legendary, but presumably in 1975 when you started gigging, nobody'd heard of the uh, Talking Heads, nobody'd heard of CBGB's, and I think you were you were doing backup for the Ramones, and nobody'd heard of them either at that stage. Yeah, although we were happy just to have an, uh, an audience, however small, and it was an it was not a large place. Oh, it's still there. It's not a large place, and uh, it's kind of filthy, but as a forum for people just to, to play their own songs, which was kind of unheard of at the time. All the clubs were either established acts or cover bands, you know, playing other people's songs or whatever. People who were unsigned and just playing their own own stuff, it was kind of unheard of. So this was this great opportunity, and people came out of the woodwork. And there was a kind of a kudos in not necessarily being technically ex- excellent, so it didn't really matter if you weren't that proficient uh, at, at what you were doing at the time. Yeah, there was more of an emphasis on just creativity and being able to express yourself and get something across. And if you could do it with three chords or two chords or one chord, well, then you could figure out a way to do that. But your the image that you created at the time i mean that you are very very far away from the ramones in every sense of the word i mean just physically just look at the look of the group you were you were i mean you were described as preppy yeah but we toured with the ramones we had a good time we got along really well uh we loved the fact that in the early days anyway audiences were equally curious about both bands they hadn't formed allegiances there was no sense of that punk rockers had to look a special, a particular way or sound a particular way or anything like that. It was just, they'd heard rumours of this new thing that was coming out. And 
yeah, we thought this was great. We we loved them as well. And how important do you think punk and new wave was in the formation of Talking Heads? Because of the fact that at the time it was it was all about it was all about blowing away the kind of music that had existed before. It was a reformation or a reaffirmation of music. Musically, I think we didn't have a whole lot in in, uh, in common with a lot of the other acts, but neither did a lot of the other ones with with one another. Um, but we shared that kind of do-it-yourself attitude, and that attitude of uh, of kind of that a lot of the big bands and music we were hearing was all kind of irrelevant and didn't speak to us. I think we all shared that kind of attitude. And when did Brian Eno then come on board? Fairly early on. I think it was, it was our second record. We'd met, I think, when we were touring after or just before or around, around about our first record. And we got along well and became kind of friends. So um, we, I think we chose him or it worked out that he produced us starting with our second record more because we felt uh, he understood what we were about rather than rather than the fact that we thought that he we didn't look at his track record that mm. he had a string of hits and that's what we wanted we thought oh here's someone that understands us and that we get along with and it'll be a good experience and just as Brian Epstein was the fifth Beatle was 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 Eno in a sense the fifth talking head eventually I think not at first but by the third record we did together yeah he became more involved in the writing of the songs and and the creative direction. Now you produced some uh, incredible. I mean, let's call them singles because uh, whether they did or whether they didn't chart. I mean, songs like "Once in a Lifetime," for example, made the National Public Radio Top One Hundred. Uh, you know, um, and you incre- You know, I mean, "Road to Nowhere." Uh, uh, you know, just a string of wonderful, wonderful songs, melodic songs as well. But in in terms of the success of the songs and the success and the the outstanding nature of those individuals. Was that incidental? I mean, would it have mattered to you if you had had that kind of success, if you had created those abiding melodies or not? I always felt that the uh, the successful songs were kind of accidents. Mm. Um, I was certainly glad that we had had them, that they were popular. And I always thought that, well, when you're working within the kind of the arena of pop music, occasionally you're going to stumble upon something that um, connects with a large number of people. Just as often you're going to do something that people like, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have as large an audience. But occasionally, kind of, the, the two worlds will overlap. I mean, would you have thought that a song like Psycho Killer, for example, would, fi- would find an audience? It's, it's a pretty, I mean, certainly even now, but certainly at the time, it was pretty edgy to be talking about or even writing about a Psycho Killer. Well, I think that probably like any band starting out, we had a, a mixture of humility and arrogance that we we thought that us and the other bands like us were a breath of fresh air and that we that if there was justice in the world, we were going to sweep all before us. And uh, but but the other on the other hand, we kind of knew that well, the world isn't quite like that, and we might remain relatively obscure obscure and no one might ever hear of us 
And would Talking Heads have survived as long as it did if you weren't working on your own projects? You were working on your own projects and of course Dina Weymouth and Chris France had Tom Tom Club as their creative outlet. Is that why it, it, it continued as long as it did? I think it really helped the band that we kind of we could occasionally take breaks from the band and do a dance score or a side project or something like that and it seemed to give each person kind of a sense of their own worth and gave them some some experience that they could bring back to the band as well. Mm. I'm just going to play and we're going to hear another track from Stop Making Sense and uh, this again one of your one of, I, I, I'll call them I'll call them singles but one of your more popular songs most popular songs Burning Down the House. Stop Making Sense was 1984, 20 years ago, and in retrospect, the choice of Jonathan Demme as director looks absolutely inspired, but how much experience and how much clout did he have at that stage? He, he had done some wonderful films at that stage. He did one called Melvin and Howard that, uh, that's really great and it's kind of almost forgotten. Um, but he, wasn't, he hadn't had huge directorial hits at the time, but he was, well, uh, very sympathetic and um, very enthusiastic. And he had the time to kind of follow us on tour for a bit and see and kind of really study what all the kind of band dynamics and what was going on in the show and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So he managed to see things that we didn't notice. He managed to kind of uh, really bring out kind of the human interactions and dynamics between the band members that we kind of take for granted or we focus on the music or other kind of uh, stage bits of stage business where he really saw the kind of 
humanity of what was going on. But he is partly responsible for you constantly being described as that guy from Talking Heads with the big white suit. To some extent, yeah. The, the <laughs> success of the, the film was kind of a, a thing. The, the thing about Stop Making Sense that hit me at the time, I was a talking, a huge Talking Heads fan at the time, but thought of Talking Heads as being a very cerebral group. To you, Sorry for using that word again, but to, sorry for repeating myself. And the thing that Stop Making Sense got across to me was the visual side of the show and the performance side of the show given the you know was the was the art college background of of yourself and chris france and, and tina weymouth part of, of the uh, the visual importance of the show yeah i think that was kind of the culmination of uh the kind of arty performance that we were doing and i think a lot of it was influenced by kind of the more kind of fringe and avant-garde theater work that was being done in new york at the time or just previous to that they eventually kind of rubbed off, and uh, I thought, well, let's see if we can do something like this in a kind of in a rock show or a pop music show, and bring some of that into this this arena. Do you enjoy bringing the avant-garde into the mainstream? Because you seem to me to do that an awful lot. You've been doing it throughout your career. Yeah, I guess so. I feel that uh, a lot of things that are considered kind of fringe or avant-garde, if they're kind of uh, they can reach a larger audience if given a musical soundtrack or kind of edited a little bit, um, that kind of thing. Or, in a sense, given the imprimatur of David Byrne. I don't know how much the name matters. I mean, I've, I've had my name on things that haven't, haven't done very well, and I don't, so I don't think things sell based on my name. Um, the 19, 2002 uh, Talking Heads briefly got together again for the induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of, of Fame. Was that a pleasant trip down memory lane, or was it a little tense because there was, you know, there's been a certain amount of animosity between the various members over the years? There was a little bit of tension, but overall it was it was fairly easy because it was, the assignment was kind of to be your own tribute band and <laughs> uh, and play the the songs exactly as the band would have played them back in the day. That's what you're meant to do on those kind of shows. So we didn't really have to come up with anything new or, or do anything really creative. We just had to recreate basically what we'd done before, which was pretty easy, and it was it was a lot of fun. It may sound like a stupid question. Are you still proud of what you did with Talking Heads? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of it. Moving on to some of the other the projects that you have been involved in. Uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. That's, uh, it was a collaboration with Eno, and uh, there was a lot of, you know, from a radio point of view, it's a terrific piece of work because there's a lot of found sound. Just explain how you got into that and what the project was about. We started kind of dabbling with the idea of making a record together, and we didn't know exactly what kind of focus it would take. And I think Brian had a couple of things uh, that had voices in. And then we started doing a, a, some other bits where we used the voices of uh, from either singers recorded more or less a cappella or radio using kind of the kind of animated ro- voices of uh, radio preachers or radio talk show hosts. So there's a, there's a kind of rhythm there's a kind of meter and cadence, certainly to a preacher, uh, but also maybe to the radio hosts. And maybe we picked up a little bit of that and thought uh, that this this will be the kind of focus of the record we do. I think it also was a way of us avoiding 
the fact that we're both singers who'd made records, and this way, neither of us would be the, the vocalist on our own record. But this is kind of sampling 15 years before sampling, in a, in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, it's not like it's not as if no one had ever done it before. I think people had done it before, but I think we just decided to make it the focus of the entire record. In case anybody hasn't heard it, let's just hear a track from it. This is uh, America is Waiting. This is an unidentified, indignant radio host, and I think I will personally dedicate this one to Vincent Brown. Before we finish, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your, your film work, which is, which is quite extensive. Uh, we could talk about your collaborations with, uh, with Twyla Tharp, for example, or Robert Wilson. But um, The Last Emperor, you, you're an Oscar winner for Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. How do, you, how do you approach the writing of a film score? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm, I don't do it that often, but I've been lucky that occasionally I work with directors who are kind of... Uh, open to having kind of music that sets a mood as opposed to having to hit a lot of specific edits and all that sort of thing. Um, I kind of look at it, I enjoy the fact that it's an assignment, so it becomes kind of like problem solving, solving solving a puzzle where they say, okay, here's here's the length of the scene, here's what the music, here's what the, the mood I want, here's the kind of music I like, and then you kind of, the puzzle is, okay, how do I please them and, and please myself and do something that, that seems all right? And uh, True Stories, the film you directed, John Goodman worked on that movie and, and he was asked about you and he said, that guy works from a different dictionary. He meant it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you take it as a compliment? Do you yeah, work do. at a different yeah, yeah. dictionary? I don't know if I do or not, but 
I, I think I know what he means. <laughs> I mean, the, the film itself was from a different dictionary, wasn't it? I guess so. It emerged from photographs and drawings and kind of newspaper articles from the tabloid press and all that sort of thing, all kind of woven together to make a kind of film all taking place in an imaginary town, which is maybe... Yeah, so it wasn't kind of story or narrative-driven the way a lot of films are. Mm. And it included uh, a person I was particularly fond of at the time and, and have been subsequently, and that was uh, Spalding Gray. You must have been very saddened uh, at, at his recent death. Yeah, it was sad to see that Spalding couldn't kind of... couldn't uh, beat his demons, I guess. Mm. They, they got him in the end. Have you beaten yours? I, well, who knows? <laughs> you still like performing? I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I, I love performing. It's a real kind of catharsis and it feels great. I think I, I love it more now than I used to. The Shy Man's Revenge? Yeah, yeah. I think I used to, it used to be something that I had to do psychologically, I guess. And now it's something that I enjoy doing. David Byrne, thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. For talking to us. Today's programme is produced by Kevin Reynolds. In the meantime, let's leave you with some more of the music of David Byrne.
little house. You may ask yourself, where does that highway lead to? You may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? You may say to yourself, my God, 